0: So my f- one of my good friends um told me a, told me a story that has that stuck stuck with me for uh for a long time. Uh he has uh he and his wife have f- uh four kids, four kids, um two of their own and two that they adopted. And uh if you've uh if you've traveled anywhere, uh you have to buy plane tickets. And plane tickets, as you know, are expensive or cheap. Wh- what would you say? Expensive. They're usually expensive, right? Now... Now, this is the thing that, that shocks you as your family grows, is that plane tickets are already expensive. And then when you add little people into your family, they become more expensive. And then you realize, I'm not just buying a ticket for myself, I'm buying a ticket for myself. And then these four these four lovely beings that will yell on the plane for the whole time. And so uh, so they were, th- my friend was planning this trip. Uh, really, you know, they hadn't done something like this in a while, and so they were planning to take their their kids and their family on a trip, and they were gonna, you know, kind of break the bank for it. And, they, you know, they don't really do stuff like this very often, and so they're gonna take them to the place that all kids love to go, which you know is Disney, Disney World Land. Yep, Disney World Land. Um, one of those two, I actually don't remember which one it is. So one of the Disney places that they're going to take them. So they, so they pony up the money. They, they throw down on six plane tickets um, and, and just the admission tickets to the Disneyland or World, whichever one. Those are not cheap either. So, so they do that. They stay at the hotel that's in the Disneyland World place, which is also not cheap. And, and so they're going all out for their kids. And they're going to stay there multiple days. And they ha- they're having a great time. And then comes kind of the last day of, uh, of the trip and uh my friend's uh oldest son um, they want to go on this line and they want to uh, uh, go and go and get this this treat and, and he says you know we're going we're not going to do that, you know we're going we're going to head back it's kind of time to kind of end the day and uh his his oldest son throws a giant giant tantrum, and uh, the words that he says that that stood out to my friend and that stick out to me is he goes, "You guys never do anything for us <laughs> and they're like my <laughs> friend's dad, I think he kind of lost, like, I think he had to walk away, um, because he's like, he's like, you could have said anything else, but you do not get to say, we have never done anything for you. We are literally in the middle of Disneyland World, or whichever place that we're in, we're in the middle of this place, like, how can you look around and say, we have never done anything for you? And I remember when I, my friend told me that story, I was just like, man, I'm not ready for kids. <laughs> I was just like, "This is crazy," um, and, and just that that co- that concept. You never do anything for us. is just the reality that that for his his son, he just he was so caught up. Like, I don't get to do this, right? He's so caught up in that that change of circumstance. Like, everything is great, but I don't get to do this. And so he forgets the that they bought the plane tickets. He forgets that his parents. Um, have done everything for him. He forgets that that they that they got him admission. He forgets that they're in the hotel. Like he just forgets everything, and and really with the with the text that we're going to look at today, we're we're looking at Exodus and and kind of looking at God and and the people of Israel. And and just as for that kid, there was a change in circumstance that led to a questioning of his parents' character, right? you never do anything for us. There's a change in circumstance that leads to a questioning of his parents' character. In the very same way in the text that we're going to look at, there's a change of circumstance for the people of Israel that leads them to question the character of God, right? And and, and we can all relate to this, right? When, When something in our lives starts to change, a circumstance changes from being fine or whatever, it changes and and it becomes sort of a crisis. And it leads us to wonder about the character of God. It leads us to wonder, like, man, where was God in this? Is is God really for me? Is God really with me? And that's exactly what the people of Israel are going to go through. And that really leads us to kind of the big idea of this whole text that we're going to look at is this, is that your biggest battle will be to trust God's character in times of crisis. So your biggest battle will be to trust God's character in times of crisis, because when circumstances change, it is so easy and natural for us to say, where are you? Or you've never done anything for me, or even to just kind of forget, to just kind of forget who God is, His track record of faithfulness, and the fact that He's with us. So our biggest battle will be to trust in God in times of Crisis, big or small. So let me set the scene before we read. Before we read the text, so so uh, Israel has been set free by God. God has shown His might and His muscle. He has flexed His power before the nations by freeing Israel, His people, from slavery and oppression to Egypt and the evil rule of Pharaoh, who was instituting uh, uh, statewide slavery and, and statewide infanticide and killing and doing all these evil things. And God delivers His people through signs and wonders. He gives the ten the ten plagues, decisive, powerful, awesome, incredible. And we have two million. Uh, People now who are doing the exodus—they are leaving Egypt, um, primarily uh, uh, Israel, but but a mixed multitude in chapter 12:38. Some some from from Egypt—they're leaving. So it's two million that are going out. They're trusting God. You have delivered us. They're they're walking in His deliverance. They're going towards their freedom. And, and God is actually going to be with them now as they're leaving Egypt and they're walking towards the promised land so they, they can be with God and, and God can dwell with them and, and then they can be a light to the nations, really this whole storyline of Scripture. And so they're leaving and God is with them and God is present. God is actually going to be with them in a pillar and cloud guiding them. So God doesn't just deliver them, but God is actually going to be with them. It's pretty cool. And they're enjoying God's deliverance. They're basking in the glow of the the pillar and cloud, I imagine, the visible presence of God until crisis comes. Until crisis rears its ugly head. So let's look at the text Exodus 14, verses 1 through 9. We've got a longer passage, but I want to walk us through it kind of um, in chunks so we get kind of the full force of the story. The first nine verses, they've been, they've been set free, they've been delivered, they're enjoying the, the, the presence of God as He's leading them, and then crisis begins to come. Exodus 14, 1 through 9. Let me read this for us. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Piharoth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of baal you shall encamp facing it by the sea. Now, God is saying, hey, kind of go back and go encamp and by the sea, which is kind of, you know, put your back to the wall. You're not really going to have a place to get away. And so this is kind of a, a, maybe a, a curious, curious thing to Moses. Then uh, verse 3, for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. So God is saying, I'm going I'm to harden Pharaoh's heart. God is saying, I'm going to intensify the, the, the sinfulness and the stubbornness that's already in Pharaoh, and so that I can, I can judge him for his evil even more clearly, and that the nations will know even more clearly that, that I am God, that they can turn to me. Verse 5. And when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? They're saying, we've let our slave labor go. We need to go and get them. Verse 6, so he made his chariot ready and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them and camped by the sea by Peheroth in front of uh, Bel-Zaphon. And verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. So everything is great. Notice, notice this, everything is great for a little bit. Everything is fantastic. If we go back to chapter 13, uh, verses 17 through uh, 22, there's a pillar and cloud that are leading God's people. God has not just delivered them, but He's actually present with them, leading them. They've just been set free, and God is with them. So this is encouraging to the people of Israel because guess what? You're set free from Egypt, but where are you going to go? It's just woods, Right? And so where are they going to go? Oh, but God shows up in a pillar and cloud. God is with them. God is going to lead them. And the pillar and cloud is there in day and in night. And so they're enjoying God's presence. Everything is fantastic until chapter 14, verse 1, where God says, hey, let's, let's kind of turn this, let's circle the wagons and kind of we're going to go back over here. And Egypt catches wind of it and God is working behind the scenes because he's going to display his glory and his grace in a profound way. But, but things were great and now a crisis comes because Egypt is coming with their army and with their chariots. And a crisis, a change of circumstance is now upon the people of Egypt. Now, we we see this in the text, 600 plus chariots. The chariot doesn't make a lot of sense to us. We kind of just think a gladiator or something. You're like, why are they so scared? A chariot, man, this is the best military technology at the time right? This is the height of military power at the time. What Psalm 27, uh, chapter 20, verse 7 says, some trust in chariots and horses, but we trust in the Lord. It's making this display. Some people trust in the highest power, military power and display of technology, but we trust in the Lord. So, so chariots and horses, 600 of them plus others. This is the whole army of Egypt coming in full force for a crew of slave workers and shepherds. So they have no chance. They they understand that nothing is going to save them apart from a extreme divine miracle of God. Which, guess what? They had just seen 10 of those, right? They had just seen 10 empirical, verifiable, real, literal displays of God's power and saving hand. And yet, when they find out that their circumstances have changed, they question God. They, they, They begin to wonder, is God really with us and for us? Look at what they say next, verses 10 through 12. So 10, when the people draw near, at the back half of 10, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Verse 11, they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Sounds like fun people to lead. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. You hear that? So the change in circumstance is leading them to say, what are we doing? Who is God? Where is he? Why didn't you just leave us in oppression and slavery so we could have died there? There's more graves there. Why'd you bring us here? What is going on? That's what they begin to wonder and question. And this teaches us one thing, that crisis begins to reveal. And crisis doesn't have to be a big thing. It can be a small thing. But a change in circumstance begins to show us what we really trust in. Change in circumstance begins to show us what we really trust in. Now we can't, we can't miss what they have just seen. They have seen 10 displays of God's power. They saw the locusts. They saw the livestock die. They saw God turn, uh, turn everything dark. They saw God turn the Nile into blood. They, say, they saw God institute the Passover. They saw all of these things. They saw the burning bush. They saw all of these things. And yet, when they see the army enclose around them, they say, Wouldn't it have been better for us to just die in Egypt? The logical thing for them to say, after having seen God display 10 miracles of his love for them, his saving power, his grace, and his care for the oppressed, the logical thing for them to say would not be to say, God, where are you? But to say, God, we need plague number 11. <laughs> like, you've done 10, we need one more because they're still here. And they're going to take us, they're going to kill us, they're going to enslave us again, and your purposes for the world are going to be choked out. But because they are like you and me, when the circumstance change, they forget. They forget the track record of God. They forget the faithfulness of God. They forget that God is for them and is with them. Now remember, they, they were just being led by the pillar in the cloud, were they not? they forget that he's with them and he's for them. And one of the things that's really important in the text for us to see is is actually this, is is that when the the people are described in in verse 10, that they, they lift up their eyes and they see that the Egyptians are marching before them and they feared greatly. Fear is kind of a thread throughout this passage, and it's really this, this idea of, 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 yes, actual literal fear, they're, they're afraid, but it's this awe, this reverence, this wonder, this being overwhelmed by the bigness of. And so what we see here and what we see the rest of the passage is that, that this idea that they, 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 the change in their circumstance led them to no longer trust God. You could also say it this way, that the change in their circumstance led them to no longer fear God, but to fear Egypt. And fear in this sense is actual fear. It's it's something that's so big that that you gotta approach it rightly, but it's also reverence and awe. And I think the best way to think about it, I've used this before, is to really think of fire. Just think about all those horrible times when you were forced to go camping, but the one good part was that there was a fire there that you could look at. And fire is so incredible that it's actually this thing that you can just be mesmerized by. Just kind of stare at it and observe it, watch it crackle and snap and pop, and it's just kind of going and you just, wow, this is amazing right? Well, well what, what, what is it? We have this, this awe and this reverence towards fire, but there's also fear. It's right to fear fire. You, you should fear fire because if it comes down to you versus fire, who's going to win? Fire, right? So fire is this thing that we fear, that we have reverence for, that we have awe towards. And in this moment, they, they see more clearly the, the armies. Of Egypt, then they've seen more clearly what God has done for them in the past. And so they fear the armies of Egypt rather than remembering that God is with them and for them. Despite the track record that God has shown. Right? This is is familiar to us. I want you to really think about. think about Think about change of circumstance in your life. Maybe even just trace over your life story, just do it, your brains are powerful, you can do both, you can do two things at once. Think about maybe crisis in your life over your life story, but think maybe over just even the last few months. Maybe there's been crisis, a a change in circumstance, maybe big or small, right? Think of just how we react to those. Right, we can we can react in in, in fearing the outcome and, and feeling like, man, there there's no good that can come out of this. God can God isn't with me through this. Or, or we can fear the outcome in such a way that we just want to flee. We just want to withdraw. We just want to shut down. Right? We we can also respond to a change of circumstances and feel feel as if we've been abandoned by God. That God, is, that God has forgotten us or overlooked us. I, I, I we got use our imagination. We speculate. You gotta. You gotta think that, that some in the camp are, are thinking. Man, God has done all this stuff. Why is He letting them come back? Like has He forgot the promises that He's made? Like where is He? So think about when crisis comes in your life. How do you respond? Do you do you do you feel that God has forgotten you? Do you feel that God has abandoned you? Do you, do you? do you withdraw and just kind of shut down emotionally? How do, you, how do you respond when crisis comes through change of circumstance? I think one of the main things that they're doing here is they're forgetting, really, if we talked about, they're forgetting who God is. This is their, you never do anything for us, mom and dad in Disneyland type moment. This is the, you, you have not proven anything. Where are you? The other thing that can happen to us when, when crisis through change of circumstance comes is we can feel that if a circumstance change, it means that God has changed. That God, that God's disposition towards us has changed, and this is always a, this is the question you hear if you ever thought this is, have I done something wrong to lead to this, right? That's the question. Well, that's actually a question: Has God changed in His disposition towards me? And we, we, be, we begin to wonder. Well, he he's been this in the past, but why is he not this in the present? We begin to f- forget and question his his character. And so, while crisis reveals what we really trust in about God, God actually in crisis He calls us to something. He calls us to 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 not be afraid and to and to be still. Look look at the next two look at the next two verses as we continue in in, in the story. Look at what happens after this. So Egypt lodges their complaint in Moses. When a few times he's calm, cool, and collected, says this in verse 13 and 14 Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. So God calls us to fear not and to, to be still. What does he tell the people? How does he encourage them in a change of circumstance? How does he encourage them in a time of crisis? He says, God's going to fight for you. Fear not, be still. You know, one of the most repeated commands in Scripture is to not be afraid. Do not be afraid, which which tells us something about ourselves, right? That, That one of the most common, natural, human responses to a change of circumstance, adversity, is to be afraid, we just got to admit that that's who we are. That's okay, and God is going to help us with that. Right? That's why he commands it over and over because it's just normal for us to be worried, to be afraid, to be anxious. That's just, that's just part of our, our, our DNA, that God is going to redeem and grow. But, but in the meantime, God says, I know that you're there. Let, let me help you. Don't, don't be afraid. Be still. I'm going to fight for you. But, but we also have to recognize this is the exact opposite of what common sense would tell us to do. Like literally, literally think through the situation. right? Well, think of a military general or strategist right? You have the world power approaching with their army and their advanced technology. You have a ragtag group of just, uh, just freed slaves and servants and their kids and their families and all this stuff. They got their staffs, they got their unleavened bread, and that's going to be great in a battle, right? The, the text says that they're prepared for battle, but they got no chance, right? They, they, they can't stand against the world power. And think of a military strategist who says, hey, this is what we're going to do, guys. Don't be afraid. Be still. <laughs> like, well, they're coming. Don't, don't be afraid be still. I mean, th- this, that makes no sense. You, you know what a, a, a better, humanly speaking, plan would be? To run. Just try. Like, you're not going to outrun the chariot, but at least try, right? Like, <laughs> don't be afraid. Be still. The Lord will fight for you. you. You mean the Lord that told us to come back here by the sea where we have no route of escape? That, that, that Lord? Right, so so this command from uh, God through Moses, it really makes no sense, and we need to be encouraged by that because it, it and when circumstances change, it feels counterintuitive to not be afraid, to trust God, and to be still. It's okay to understand that feels counter to what I should actually do. We need to understand that 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 that's fine and that's good, but here's why. Here's why, though that is counterintuitive, it's exactly what the people of God should do because the people of God are different because we've seen the action and character of God on display for us once before. And so they should, the people of God should react in a very distinct and different non-common sense type of way because we've seen what God has done in the past. We have a track record that we can go back. We have film we can go back and study. We have notes we can review. We have a life story that we can look back on and say, Ah, yeah, I've seen what God has done. So in fact, I can trust in him in a situation that makes no sense because I remember what he's done for me before. I remember His character. I've seen it on display. I've been a recipient of His faithfulness. I've been a receiver of His grace. I've I've felt His love and His mercy at different places, different times, in different ways. So I remember what He's done so I can be still and fear not in the present. This all comes down to, in crisis, knowing who God is and what God has done. And when God says, be still, it doesn't mean do nothing. It, it means do what you're responsible for and trust God for strength and for outcome. It does no good for the, for the Israelites to worry here. What, what, could, what is their worry gonna do? Is it gonna produce weaponry that they can use to battle? It's not gonna do anything. So they might as well just entrust themselves to the Lord who is the one that can fight for them. And this is why the preparation for change in circumstance, the preparation for crisis when it comes, the preparation, the ability to fear not and to stand firm, it comes from this act. It comes from remembering. The ability to do, verse 14, comes from remembering. See, a change in circumstance has a way of kind of short-circuiting our memory about God. And so the way we are able to fear not and stand firm is through remembering, through the ritual of remembering. See, the greatest battle that, that you will face will be trusting God in times of crisis, and the ability to do so comes from remembering, comes from remembering comes from remembering. Notice I'm trying to help you with remembering, right? Comes from remembering. There's a soft, soothing voice. Comes from remembering, helping you remember. The rest of the sermon is 10 more minutes of this, so just be ready. Comes from remembering. Okay? So we got it, right? It comes from remembering. That's how we are able to do verse 14 is through remembering. Okay? right? And we see this uh, in, in the previous spots in, in, in the book of Exodus. Think think about this. We made a joke about the unleavened bread, and by we, I mean me. But the unleavened bread, right? God institutes this whole ritual. He spends a lot of time unpacking that in Exodus, this, this ritual of unleavened bread. Chapter 12, he spends a lot of time with this ritual of the Passover. We see a lot of this stuff laid out. Why? He's giving them rituals and institutions so that they can remember, He's, he's, he's trying to help them because he knows that it is easy for us to forget what God has done in the past, which then leads us to in, uh, um, inordinate amounts of fear in the present because we forgot what has been behind us in the track record of faithfulness that God has shown us. So we need help in the work of remembering, right? The only way you can not fear an army in front of you is if you remember the God who is beside you. That's the only way. The only way you can face those circumstances that are difficult in front of you is if you remember the God who is with you. And so it takes this, this work of remembering. That's how you stand firm and fear not. That's how you can face any crisis, by remembering that God delivers His people according to the big picture that God sees, not the little picture that we see. Right, you see this in early in chapter 14, that God is actually working a plan that the people of Israel don't necessarily have full insight into. He's doing something that's going to make the, 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 the freedom of Israel a blessing to the whole world, not just to them. And He's going to do it by decisively judging an evil world power. So he's, doing, he's got a big picture plan. And so remembering His character is the way that we are prepared to endure change of circumstance, trials, and crises, by remembering the saving work and character of God. So I want to I help you with this um, in, in this way. Just think about remembering. How can, we, how can we remember the saving work and character of God that will help us through changes of circumstances, through, through tough times, through crisis, through trials? This is how we can remember. I want to give you a couple ways. One of the ways that we remember is that we remember in worship. Like, there's actually a reason that, that the Bible uh, describes and, and prescribes the gathering of God's people, friends, family, guests, even people who are, who are asking questions, right? They gather and they rehearse. They, they rehearse the Scriptures. They hear the Scriptures. They sing praises to God. Why? That's actually an act, an act of worship that is helping us to remember, right? How, how many other points in your week Do you get to gather with other people who are trying to journey towards Jesus, you hear from God's word, and you remember, okay, this is the big story of what God is doing in the world, right? Your workplace isn't doing that right? So so this is actually a touchstone where we come and we remember, okay, this is who I am. This is what God is doing in the world. This This is what's really true of me. Everywhere I go out there, I feel like a failure, but here's what's true of me when I come and I gather. I remember that God is with me and for me in Jesus, that I'm not determined by what I achieve, but by what I have received through Jesus' grace and mercy. We remember again about our identity, but also about who God is. And it helps fuel us for our change of circumstances, our crisis, our struggles, and the things that, that we all face. Right? The other way that you can remember, and, and this, is, this is kind of a, a thing that is kind of a, a practice to develop, but we can remember the saving work of character of God that helps us through crisis by actually just remembering our story, by just remembering our life story. We all have a track record of wounds and hurts and baggage, but even within those things and, and maybe alongside of those things and in, in different ways from those things, we, we all can trace a track record of, well, this is how, what God has done in my life. Every single person has the question, well, where was God here? But we also have the track record of, this is where God did show up. And so one of the ways that we remember that helps us through crisis is to, is to regularly stop and, and trace the faithfulness of God in our lives. It's actually, even if you're not this type of person, to actually write them out, to to journal them, to look back on them, to just trace what has God done in my life that I'm prone to forget, but actually when I reflect on, it inspires me with trust for the future as I remember His faithfulness in the past. This is the gift of remembering. We also remember in Scripture as we we strive to to turn to God's Word, even as we're doing a community Bible reading, our, our CBR thing. Right? Well, that's a way of remembering. Remember, this is who God is. This is what God has done. These are the ways that we remember. The other thing we need in remembering is we need people like Moses to come and to tell us, don't be afraid. God's with you. Y'all, don't be afraid. Did you not remember the 10 plagues before? We need people in our lives to remind us that, people who know our story, so they can say, hey, don't be afraid to remember when this happened two years ago and God proved faithful. Man, we need people like that to remind us and to help us remember the character of God. Because when we're in the middle of a changed circumstance or crisis, it is so easy to forget. When we talk about becoming gospel people, one of the things that we mean by that is is, is this idea that the gospel restores us to God, but also unites us together as family. So we've used this phrase before that the gospel makes us responsible siblings for one another in the church. And as responsible siblings, it's our job to kind of play the Moses role for each other in a small way where we help one another remember God's faithfulness. And so one of the things that we want to take from this is, man, we need to do the work of remembering, but that person next to you, the person behind you, they need your help in remembering too. They need you to help remind them of God's saving work, character, and faithfulness so that together we can not be afraid and and stand firm in the midst of crisis and conflict. And So this is what God calls us to. He says, see, you're going to see the hand of salvation, and then God actually does it. God actually saves, and He saves (coughs) despite the people of Israel. So let's read the last the last section of the text and share a couple of things there. So the last section of the text is where God shows up decisively and saves his people despite their fear, despite their doubt, despite their inadequacy. Look at verse 14 of chapter 14. The Lord will fight for you and you only have to be silent. 15. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. God's like, why are you even praying right now? There's a long time where it's like, don't pray. (laughs) Just go forward, believe me. Stop praying. Don't take that out of context. The pastor said, don't pray. 16, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel, of the, Lord, uh, the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud in the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. The people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and drew the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove away heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in the servant Moses." So God demonstrates that He is Lord over creation. The, this, he brings this wind, right? This is, this, this is actually this thread throughout the Bible, this idea of God, God's spirit actually hovering over creation. He brings His wind, His, his spirit, His power, and he, and he parts the sea. And as the people go, then Egypt pursues, and He brings it back over, and He judges Egypt and Pharaoh. And in that judgment of their evil, He administers grace to His people. And they go free. They're delivered. Though his people deserve the same judgment, he sets them free with mercy, and he judges Egypt for their evil in this instance. And he saves his people. And, and notice, notice what we hear in 30 through 31. We get this re- returning motif of the people see. They see. Remember in, in 10 and 12, they, they saw the army and they feared. Well, now they see that the Lord delivers. And who do they fear? They fear the Lord. They see that the hand, 30 and 31, they see that the hand of the Lord is strong, stronger than the hand of the Egyptians to pursue and to do evil. They see that God's righteous mercy and grace is stronger than the evil and oppression of Pharaoh and Egypt. They see, and as they see, they fear the Lord, they trust in him because they're delivered. This is a decisive act of saving that God has enacted and done. I remember uh, hearing a story by um, of a preacher uh, who uh, went into a, a black church and was preaching this text, and um, and he read the text, and and, and uh, someone interrupts uh, right after um, the part where you know this the, the Exodus, the, the seas parted, and and then it closes in, and, and, and Egypt is judged, and Israel goes free, and uh, and someone yells out, "Praise the Lord! Praise the Lord for controlling those mighty waters and delivering his people." And the preacher was kind of upset because the preacher actually didn't, didn't believe this really was what happened. And so the preacher responds and says, well, it was actually just a water. It, was just, it wasn't a real river. It was really just a very shallow river, about about 10 to 12 inches. And this is kind of allegory. And the person responds, praise the Lord for drowning all those people in six inches of water. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so for the person, they're like, I don't care what you say. God did like, the, whatever it is, God did it. God did it. God, did it. God saved his people. And, and I just shared that because there's so much in this text that we could unpack. There's so much that we could apply and dig through. It's beautiful. It's rich. But the, the big idea that we have to see from this, and my time is running short, so the big idea that we have to see this is that the exodus, this going out of the people, this, this, this judgment upon evil and grace being administered to God's people, it, it's, it's, it's really this, this paradigm. It's really this picture. It's kind of setting this pattern for what Jesus does for us. If we look at the whole scriptures, the event that everybody looks to outside of the cross is this event. This is the big deal. What the cross is to us in the Old Testament scriptures is the exodus. So this is setting to display that God saves his people. Now you might hear this and look, at, oh man, all these army, they died. Isn't this cruel of God? God judges evil. You ever watch the news and see a murder and you say, I want that person to be judged. You ever feel that way? That's what God is doing here. Remember chapter one of Exodus, what does Pharaoh do with water? He kills the Hebrew children in water. Systematically, it's evil. And what does God do? He judges them with water. He is bringing true justice. And what's happening? Who's going free? Israel and some from Egypt. So justice is given upon evil, mercy is given to Israel and partly to Egypt so that in the future, Egypt and the whole nations will know that God saves. And the greater exodus that we have seen is they pass through these waters. The greater exodus that we have been given is through Jesus. Through Jesus, we pass through the the, the waters. We pass through judgment. We don't have to receive judgment anymore because Jesus has taken it upon himself. We have an exodus where we go free and receive grace and mercy. And when we understand that 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 is how much God is for us, that is how much God is with us, that's how much God cares for us, that He gives His Son upon the cross to to be our exodus moment where we go free from sin, guilt, and shame. That is the landmark, the anchor to remember that helps you with the crisis in the present. When we understand that is the display, that is the depth, that is the reality of God's character for you and for me that He gives His very own Son so that judgment would pass us by and we would walk in freedom, mercy, and grace for our whole lives. That is our exodus. That's how we overcome fear in the middle of crisis or changed circumstance, when we see and taste and remember the faithfulness of God displayed in what Jesus has done. Notice, notice in the text, the word to them in verse 14 is, fear not and see what the Lord will do. They're being called to not be afraid based on something that they will see. But in light of the cross, we're being called to not be afraid in light of something that we've already seen. Christ has already been given. Christ has already been nailed to the tree. Christ has already risen. So our, the word to us is, fear not because of what Christ has done. Do you, do you see the benefit that we stand in? We have a greater exodus that has happened in the past, so when Christ comes before us, we can look back and say, that's who you are, God, and you're with me today. The pillar and cloud leads the people of, leads the people of uh, Israel as they're going out, but, but what, how does God lead us today? He leads us by His Word, but He also leads us by His Spirit within us. Do you see how everything is greater for us because we stand in light of what Christ has done in our place? And lastly, as we think about this idea of trusting God in the middle of crisis, there is no greater example of someone who has done that perfectly than Jesus, which is an encouragement to us because God is not expecting you to trust Him perfectly in the midst of crisis. Think about how He saves Israel. Were they trusting Him when He brought salvation for them? No. They're saying, we want to go back to Egypt and die. Right, they're, they're the opposite of really, really trusting. They're they're worried, they're doubting, they're basically cursing him. But God says, "Hey, I'm going to save you guys anyway, right?" And they're going to continue to complain, and He's going to work on them, right? But the, they, he, he He displays His salvation. He gives them grace. He delivers them, even as they are afraid. And so, God is not calling us to not be afraid perfectly, to be still perfectly. He's calling us to trust in Him, and He will grow us in those things. The only one who has trusted God perfectly in crisis is His Son, Jesus Christ. Israel is surrounded by the armies of Egypt, but do you know what Jesus was surrounded by? By the army and soldiers of Rome. By Roman soldiers beating him, mocking him, spitting upon him. Placing a crown of thorns upon his head. And what does he do in this time of crisis, in this change of circumstance? Or hours before, he's being praised, and and now he's being mocked and beaten. What does he do in this moment of crisis, this change of circumstance? Does he say, God, where are you? No, he entrusts himself to the Father. He he has these moments where he says, God, is this your will? God, take this cup from me. He on the cross says, God, why have you forsaken me? But that's because he's enduring judgment in our place. But in his moment of crisis, he trusts his father. He trusts what will come. He knows that it will bring salvation. In his moment of crisis, he is the only one who trusts God perfectly, who fears not and is still. He's the one who's done it for us. And so what that means for you and me is that we don't have to be perfect at not being afraid. We don't have to be perfect at at being still. We just have to look to the one who was perfect for us. And as we look to him, as we remember him, do you know what will happen for you? You'll become bolder. You will be less afraid. You will find yourself able to be still in your battles because you will remember Christ who won the great battle over sin for you. So the act of remembering is how we fear not and be still in the middle of our crisis. That's God's word for us today.